Good evening. I'm Anthony Robustelli, author of I Want to Tell You, The Definitive Guide to the Music of the Beatles, and this is the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. Each week I'll be playing stripped-down, deconstructed mixes of classic Beatles songs, highlighting different instruments and vocals in a way that will truly amaze you. Imagine sitting in the control room at EMI Studios and having the opportunity to peel away the layers of a song, discovering new elements that you never knew existed. This is the closest you can get to that experience. So sit back, tune in, and enjoy the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. I'll make you maybe next time This week we're going to begin the show with two Ringo songs from 1963, Boys and I Want to Be Your Man. From the first album, the Beatles always tried to give Ringo a feature, and it happened on nearly every LP, the Hard Day's Night and Let It Be LPs being the only ones to not have a Ringo song. That is if you count Flying as one of his, because his voice is so prominent, and he did get a writing credit. While Lennon and McCartney wrote I Want to Be Your Man for Star, his songs recorded for Please Please Me, the Long Tall Sally EP, Beatles for Sale, and Help would all be cover songs. After Help, his songs would either be originals crafted by Lennon and McCartney, or songs that Starr wrote himself. Had the rejected If You've Got Troubles been used on the Help album instead of Act Naturally, Honey Don't from Beatles for Sale would have been his third and final cover song recorded for a Beatles album. The group never had an issue with covering songs that were originally sung by girl groups. In fact, they quite enjoyed it. They sang the Phil Spector pen Teddy Bears hit To Know Him Is To Love Him, The Cookies Chains, Little Eva's The Locomotion, the Don A's Devil in His Heart, the Marvelettes Please Mr. Postman, as well as the Shirelles Will You Love Me Tomorrow and Baby It's You. But Boys would prove to be the only one that didn't completely benefit from the gender switch in the lyrics. While all of the other songs could easily be sung by a male or female, the chorus of Boys contains the What a Bundle of Joy line, making it a bit awkward for a male vocalist. Luckily, it wasn't an issue for the group, as they cared more about the sound of a song than its lyrics. Paul spoke of it in the Beatles anthology. It was a little embarrassing, because it went, I'm talking about boys, yeah, yeah, boys. It was a Shirelle hit, and they were girls singing it, but we never thought we should call it girls, just because Ringo was a boy. We just sang it the way they'd sung it, and never considered any implications. The song was originally a Pete Best spotlight, and according to McCartney, one of the highlights of their live show. Ironically, Ringo sang this song with his former group, Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, so it was an easy fit. Recorded in one take, Boys truly captured the raucousness of a live show and arguably contains the best Harrison solo on the album. Boys has the distinction of being the only 12-bar blues on the Please Please Me album, and although the Beatles stick to the original in form, they inject an excitement that is lacking in the Shirelles version. Their early cover versions of R&B songs are often edgier, with guitars substituting for piano and horns, and grooves played with more of a straight-ahead rock feel. At times, the shuffle or swing of the original is dropped in favor of a more driving force on the drums. We'll follow Boys with Star's feature from With the Beatles, the Lennon-McCartney penned I Wanna Be Your Man, which would also be the A-side of the Rolling Stones' second single. Star was originally given Little Child to sing on the group's sophomore LP, but once he dismissed it, another song was needed. McCartney stated, I Wanna Be Your Man was to try and give Ringo something like Boys, an up-tempo song he could sing from the drums, so again it had to be very simple. Was the song tailor-made for him, or knocked off for the Rolling Stones? Probably both. The song was most likely started with Star in mind, and finished when the song was offered to the Rolling Stones. Once it was completed, the Beatles wasted no time recording their version, beginning work on September 11th, the day after their meeting with the Stones. Even though this story has been well documented, there are a number of versions of how the Beatles ended up writing the Rolling Stones' first top 20 hit. This relationship also resulted in the Beatles inspiring Mick Jagger and Keith Richards to compose their own songs. According to Lennon, I Want to Be Your Man was a kind of lick Paul had. I Want to Be Your Lover Baby, I Want to Be Your Man. I think we finished it off with the Stones. They wanted a song we went to see them and see what kind of stuff they did. Mick and Keith had heard that we had an unfinished song. Paul just had this bit and we needed another verse or something. We sort of played it roughly to them, and they said, yeah, okay, that's our style. So Paul and I just went off in the corner of the room and finished the song off while they were all still there talking. We came back, and that's how Mick and Keith got inspired to write, because, Jesus, look at that. They just went in the corner and wrote it and came back. Right in front of their eyes, we did it. I Want to Be Your Man is often considered a throwaway song, one that was discarded and hastily resurrected as a subpar giveaway. Even Lennon thought of it that way, stating in 1980, it was a throwaway. The only two versions of the song were Ringo and the Rolling Stones. It shows how much importance we put on it. We weren't going to give them anything great, right? On the contrary, the song contains one element that was significant and would make many of the Beatles' revolver-era compositions revolutionary. Most wouldn't expect I Want to Be Your Man to have so much in common with the likes of Ticket to Ride, Paperback Writer, Rain, and Tomorrow Never Knows, 
but it most certainly does. In fact, it is a precursor to those groundbreaking songs. The common denominator? The one-chord drone. This is the first use of the one-chord drone in a Beatles song, a technique that would epitomize a number of their mid-60s hits. It seems as if this was an idea the band members came up with in the studio, being that the Rolling Stones version goes to the five-chord in bars four and seven. Lennon's tremolo guitar, along with Martin's Hammond organ overdub, created the drone-like effect, giving a slightly swirling, psychedelic feel to the proceedings. For such a simple song, it apparently was an issue getting it up to speed, taking five separate sessions to create a master. The band would not spend this much time on a song for another three years. The next such instance would be Got to Get You Into My Life on the band's seventh LP, Revolver. For their first six albums, songs were usually completed in one or two sessions. It's surprising that I Want to Be Your Man was afforded so much time, being that it wasn't considered an important song. By spending the time needed to create an energetic backing track, Starr was given a vocal spot that he would perform live throughout the Beatles' career. He would perform it as late as their final live performance at Candlestick Park, San Francisco, on August 29, 1966. For these two classic Ringo songs, we're going to switch between the vocals and rhythm section remix style. <laughs> Take a trip around the world, hey, 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 yes, you say you do. My girl says that I kiss her lip, get the thrill through a fingertip, hey, 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 hey. I wanna be your man. I wanna be your man. 
Next up, two Lennon songs from Rubber Soul that truly show two sides of the songwriter, as well as one from McCartney that shows a darker side to his lyrics. For the closing song of Rubber Soul, Lennon took his jealousy to new levels, threatening to actually kill his lover if he ever finds her with another man. Lennon explains that the song was inspired by Elvis Presley's fourth single, recorded in 1955. It was inspired from Baby Let's Play House. There was a line in it. I used to like specific lines from songs. I'd rather see you dead, little girl, than to be with another man. I wrote it around that, a line from an old blues song that Presley did. When speaking of the song, McCartney explained another aspect of the lyrics. John was always on the run, running from his life. He was married, whereas none of my songs would have catch you with another man. It was never a concern of mine at all, because I had a girlfriend, and I would go with other girls. It was a perfectly open relationship, so I wasn't as worried about that as John was. A bit of a macho song. The song was recorded during the first session for the Rubber Soul album on October 12, 1965, and featured four different guitar parts played by George. The next song, In My Life, couldn't be any further from Run For Your Life, both musically and lyrically. The idea for the song came to John after he was interviewed by journalist Kenneth Alsop following the release of his book In His Own Right. Alsop asked him why he didn't write songs the way he wrote poems, and suggested that he write something about his childhood. Originally, the song was more like Penny Lane lyrically, naming specific places, including Penny Lane, rather than the more abstract feel of the final version. McCartney stated in Barry Miles' biography, many years from now, that he played a significant role in the composition of this song, both musically and lyrically, making this one of the only Beatles songs that the partners disagree on regarding songwriting credit. We'll finish this portion of the program with McCartney's I'm Looking Through You, yet another song dealing with the growing problems in his relationship with Jane Asher. She was interested in furthering her career, which made McCartney question her commitment. She went down to the Bristol Old Vic quite a lot around this time. Suffice it to say that this song was probably related to that romantic episode, and I was seeing through her facade, and realizing that it wasn't quite all that it seemed. I would write it out in a song, and then I've got rid of the emotion. I don't hold grudges, so that gets rid of that little bit of emotional baggage. I remember specifically this one being about that, getting rid of some emotional baggage. I'm looking through you, and you're not there? At this point in their recording career, the group would spend more time in the studio perfecting a song, but I'm Looking Through You took this to the extreme. The group would work on three different versions over four sessions totaling 18 hours. And while I Want to Be Your Man took more sessions, this took more time. Therefore, this is the most time they had spent on a song to date. These three Rubber Soul tracks would be true remixes highlighting various elements of the recordings. Enjoy. And I can't spend my whole life trying just to make you toe the line You better run for your life if you can, little girl Hide your head in the sand, little girl Catch you with another man, that's the end, little girl For your life if you can, little girl Hide your head in the sand, little girl I catch you with another man That's the end, little girl
Beatles multi-track meltdown. We'll start the second part of tonight's show with the A-side of the group's first single of 1966, Paperback Writer. 
Lyrically, the song was unlike anything that McCartney had written and was not a typical topic for a pop single in 1966. McCartney elaborated in an interview from that time. The idea is a bit different. Years ago, my Auntie Lil said to me, why do you always write songs about love all the time? Can't you ever write about a horse or the summit conference or something interesting? So I thought, all right, Auntie Lil. And recently, we've not been writing all our songs about love. The song was the fourth recorded during the Revolver Sessions, and out of these four songs, three of them, Love You Too, Tomorrow Never Knows, and Paperback Writer, were all based on a one-chord drone, a technique used in Indian music. Lennon has called this the companion to Day Tripper, but it is much heavier with a distorted lead guitar played on McCartney's Epiphone Casino, an incredibly fluid bass part played on his Rickenbacker bass, and heavily compressed drums by Starr. While the basic track of Paperback Rider, recorded on April 13, 1966, was straightforward with Starr on drums, Harrison on tambourine, Lennon on rhythm guitar, and McCartney on lead guitar, the overdub session the next day was anything but. After numerous attempts at overdubbing the bass and backing vocals, along with jangle piano and organ, it was decided that no keyboards were necessary. After working on the backing vocals, it was time for McCartney to overdub his bass part. Both John and Paul had complained about the lack of bass on Beatles records in comparison to American releases, and engineer Jeff Emmerich was given the task of finding a way to get more bass on record. He explained how he did this in his book Here, There, and Everywhere. It occurred to me that since microphones are in fact simply loudspeakers wired in reverse, why not try using a loudspeaker as a microphone? Logically, it seemed that whatever can push bass signal out can also take it in, and that a large loudspeaker should be able to respond to low frequencies better than a small microphone. The more I thought about it, the more it made sense. Over the next few hours, while the boys rehearsed with George Martin, Ken Townsend, our maintenance engineer, and I conducted a few experiments. To my delight, the idea of using a speaker as a microphone seemed to work pretty well. Even though it didn't deliver a lot of signal and was kind of muffled, I was able to achieve a good bass sound by placing it up against the grill of the bass amplifier, speaker to speaker, and then routing the signal through a complicated setup of compressors and filters, including one huge experimental unit that I secretly borrowed from the office of Mr. Cook, the manager of the maintenance department. With renewed confidence, I returned to the studio to try it out for real. Paul looked at me in a funny way as I set up the big bulky loudspeaker in front of his amp instead of the usual microphone, but he didn't say anything, and neither did George Martin. They returned their attention to the rehearsals, giving me the opportunity to cautiously raise the fader carrying the bass signal. Besides Paul's double-track lead vocals, backing vocals from John and George, and Paul's bass, Harrison overdubbed additional guitar before the song was complete. This is an instrumental mix that highlights the heavy drums, bass, and guitars. Next up, two songs from 1967. The first, She's Leaving Home, was written after Paul read an article in the February 27, 1967 issue of London's Daily Mail about the disappearance of teenager Melanie Coe, 
the daughter of John and Elsie Coe from Stamford Hill, London. The headline was, A-Level Girl Dumps Car and Vanishes. Her father was quoted as exclaiming, I cannot imagine why she would run away. She has everything here, even her fur coat. McCartney explained the inspiration in Barry Miles' book many years from now. We'd seen a story in the newspaper about a young girl who had left home and not been found. There were a lot of those at the time. That was enough to give us a storyline, so I started to get the lyrics. She slips out and leaves a note, and then the parents wake up, and then it was rather poignant. I like it as a song, and when I showed it to John, he added the Greek chorus, long sustained notes, and one of the nice things about the structure of the song is that it stays on those chords endlessly. Before that period in our songwriting, we would have changed chords, but it stays on the C chord. It really holds you. It's a really nice little trick, and I think it worked very well. While I was showing that to John, he was doing the Greek chorus, the parents' view. We gave her most of our lives, we gave her everything money could buy. I think that may have been in the runaway story. Might have been a quote from the parents. John added to this by saying, Paul had the basic theme for this song, but all those lines like we sacrificed most of our life, we gave her everything money could buy, those were the things Mimi used to say to me. It was easy to write. Coincidentally, Melanie had met Paul four years earlier on October 4, 1963, when the then 13-year-old competed with three other contestants in a miming competition on the hit British television show Ready, Steady, Go, the first time the Beatles appeared on the show. Paul judged the competition, and he picked Melanie as the winner. Like Eleanor Rigby, She's Leaving Home only features vocals performed by the Beatles, but unlike Rigby, George Martin did not write the score. In his book All You Need Is Ears, he described how this came to be. During the making of Pepper, Paul was also about to give me one of the biggest hurts of my life. At that time, I was still having to record all my other artists. One day, Paul rang to me and said, I've got a song I want you to work with me on. Can you come around tomorrow afternoon? I want to get it done quickly. We'll book an orchestra and you can score it. I can't tomorrow, Paul. I'm recording Scylla Black at 2.30. Come on, you can come around at 2 o'clock. No, I can't. I've got a session on. All right, then, he said, and that ended the conversation. What he did then, as I discovered later, was to get Neil Aspinall, the road manager, to ring around and find someone else to do the score for him, simply because I couldn't do it at that short notice. In the end, he found Mike Leander, who could. The following day, Paul presented me with it and said, here we are, I've got a score, we can record it now. I recorded it with a few alterations to make it work better, but I was hurt. I thought, Paul, you could have waited, for I really couldn't have done it that afternoon, unless I had just devoted everything to the Beatles and never dealt with any other artist. Paul obviously didn't think it was important that I should do everything. To me, it was. I wasn't getting much out of it from a financial point of view, but at least I was getting satisfaction. The score itself was good enough and still holds up today, but it was the only score that was ever done by anyone else during all my time at the Beatles. However, it had happened, and there was nothing to be done about it. For this mix, we'll mute the vocals and feature the lovely strings and harp. We'll then hear one of the highlights from the Magical Mystery Tour LP and film, McCartney's Fool on the Hill. Paul elaborated on its inspiration in an interview. Fool on the Hill was mine, and I think I was writing about someone like Maharishi. His detractors called him a fool. Because of his giggle, he wasn't taken too seriously. It was this idea of a fool on the hill, a guru in a cave, that I was attracted to. I remember once hearing about a hermit who missed the Second World War because he'd been in a cave in Italy, and that always appealed to me. There were some good words in it, perfectly still. I liked that. And the idea that everyone thinks he's stupid appealed to me because they still do. Saviors or gurus are generally spat upon. So I thought for my generation, I'd suggest that they weren't as stupid as they looked. He originally recorded a solo demo recording on September 6, 1967, returning to it three weeks later to record the final version. For this mix, we'll feature McCartney's piano and vocal, Lennon's acoustic guitar, as well as recorder and a bit of harmonica and percussion. Two songs from 67.
day after day alone on a hill the man with the foolish grin is keeping perfectly still but nobody wants to know him they can see that he's just a fool and he never gives an answer but the fool on the hill sees the sun going down and the eyes in his head see the world spinning round well on the way head in a cloud the man of a thousand voices talking perfectly loud but nobody ever hears him or the sound he appears to make and he never seems to notice but the fool on the hill sees the sun going down and the eyes in his head see the world spinning round And nobody seems to like him they can tell what he wants to do and he never shows his feelings but the fool on the hill sees the sun going down and the eyes in his head see the world spinning round sun going down and the eyes in his head see the world spinning round Welcome back to the Beatles multi-track meltdown the Beatles attempted to record an instrumental during the Rubber Soul sessions, but 12-bar original wasn't too original and was shelved until the Beatles Anthology Project. In 1967, they made another attempt, and the group's only released instrumental, Flying, was born. McCartney stated that Flying was an instrumental that we needed for Magical Mystery Tour, so in the studio one night, I suggested to the guys that we make something up. I said, we can keep it very, very simple. We can make it a 12-bar blues. We need a little bit of a theme and a little bit of a backing. I wrote the melody. The only thing to warrant it as a song is basically the melody. Otherwise, it's just a nice 12-bar backing thing. It's credited to all four, which is how you would credit a non-song. This mix will begin with the rhythm section before switching to the piano and melody, first played on the trombone setting on the Mellotron, and then sung by the four Beatles. The song will also feature an extended ending not heard on the released version. Listen for the special surprise at the end. Flying.
close the show with two tracks from the Beatles' White Album. The first, Birthday, was written in the studio on September 18th and recorded that same day. McCartney explained in a 1968 interview, What happened was The Girl Can't Help It was on television. That's an old rock film with Little Richard and Fats Domino and Eddie Cochran and a few others, and we wanted to see it. So we started recording at 5 o'clock, and we said, we'll do something, we'll make up a backing track. So we kept it very simple, 12-bar blues kind of thing, and we stuck in a few bits here and there in it, with no idea what the song was or what was going to go on top of it. We just said, okay, 12 bars in A, and we'll change to D, I'm going to do a few beats in C, and we really just did it like that, random thing. And we came back here to my house and watched The Girl Can't Help It. Then we went back to the studio again and made up some words to go with it all. So this song was just made up in an evening. We had never thought of it before then, and it's one of my favorites because of that. I think it works, you know, because it's a good one to dance to. Like the big long drum break? Normally we might have four bars of drums, but with this we just keep it going. We all like to hear drums plodding on. Lennon wasn't as fond of the song, calling it a piece of garbage. Birthday saw the return of the harmonized lead vocals of Lennon-McCartney and features the duo on lead guitar with McCartney on piano, Harrison on six-string bass, Starr on drums and tambourine, and Patty Harrison, Yoko Ono, and Mal Evans adding hand claps and backing vocals. We're going to start with drums and guitar, but different instruments and vocals will come in and out throughout the song. We'll then hear the folk-flavored McCartney original Rocky Raccoon. McCartney elaborated on its origins. I was sitting on the roof in India with a guitar. John and I were sitting around playing guitar, and we were with Donovan, and we were just sitting around enjoying ourselves, and I started playing the chords of Rocky Raccoon, you know, just messing around. Originally, it was Rocky Sassoon, and we just started making up the words, you know, the three of us, and started just to write them down. They came very quickly, and eventually I changed it from Sassoon to Raccoon, because it sounded more like a cowboy. So there it is. These kind of things, you can't really talk about how they come, because they just come into your head. You know, they really do. And it's like John writing his books. I don't know how he does it, and he doesn't know how he does it, but he just writes. I think people who actually do create and write, you tend to think, oh, how did he do that? But it actually does flow. Just flows into their head, into their hand, and they write it down, you know? And that's what happened with this. I don't know anything about the Appalachian Mountains, or cowboys and Indians, or anything. But I just made it up, you know? And the doctor came in stinking of gin and proceeded to lie on the table. So there you are. I like talking blues, so I started off like that. Then I did my tongue-in-cheek parody of a western, and threw in some amusing lines. Margot Bird was one of many fans dubbed Apple Scruffs that hung around outside EMI Studios in order to meet the members of the group. She told an interesting story of the doctor that appears in Rocky Raccoon. Paul had a moped which he came off one day in May 1966. He was a bit stoned at the time, and cut his mouth and chipped his tooth. The doctor that came to treat him was stinking of gin, and because he was a bit worse for wear, he didn't make a very good job of the stitching, which is why Paul had a nasty lump on his lip for a while. For this mix, we'll start with acoustic guitar and a bit of vocals until halfway through the second verse, where we'll switch to a harmonica-heavy mix, followed by an appropriate barrelhouse piano played by George Martin. We'll also hear harmonium played by Lennon, and some stellar backing vocals by McCartney, Lennon, and Harrison.
Well, that's it for this week, Beatles fans. I'm Anthony Robustelli, author of I Want to Tell You, The Definitive Guide to the Music of the Beatles, Volume 1, 1962-1963, and you've been listening to the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. Tune in every week at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, to hear more deconstructed mixes of classic Beatle tunes, live tracks, and solo recordings. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter, ShadyBearBKLYN, and like the page on Facebook for the book I Want to Tell You. You can pick it up at Amazon.com and at the website, TheBeatlesIWantToTellYou.com. See you next week.